Crafting and executing a go-to-market strategy is one of the biggest challenges for an early-stage startup. In this talk from Grayscale, an event hosted by Greylock Partners, Greylock Enterprise Partner Jerry Chen shares his unit of value framework for taking a product to market. For more podcasts, please visit news.greylock.com. Thank you, guys. Hopefully the morning was productive. I think the way we structured the morning was focused on kind of overview of blitzscaling or grayscaling. We'll figure out the right terminology eventually, and we'll apply the right trademarks and t-shirts. And then Dan and Jeff, obviously, it's, I feel blessed and lucky to work with those guys day in, day out, because you don't realize how good Dan and Jeff are at their jobs until you actually spend time with them. And if you're fortunate enough, like Mike Callahan, to work with both Dan Pertieu and Jeff Markowitz, you'll understand how valuable having both those guys on your team can be. So this afternoon, we're going to switch topics, switch speeds. Again, I'm going to give a quick overview on, on a framework called unit value we'll talk about in a second. And then we're very lucky to have, after this, a fireside chat with Mike Clayville, who worked with me back in the day at VMware. He's now VP of sales for Amazon Web Services. And we're talk about two things. One, you know, probably a little bit of Amazon writ large, but also just about scaling go-to-market from small deal sizes to multi-million dollar deal sizes. He's seen that several times. Then after that, we're going to have a panel with two CIOs to talk about the customer perspective on how they work with startups, small and large. And then obviously dinner, we'll finish the night with a fireside chat with Daniel Bushry. And again, so hopefully you're taking the time to uh, meet each other, network and compare notes and mix seats. I know like Brian's never leaving that seat. So if you don't switch seats, you should feel free to uh, mix and mingle maybe after the next break, sit next to somebody new, quite frankly. Okay, unit value, I think I probably blogged and overtweeted this because I think half the folks probably have read it or seen it. But if you heard me give this spiel or talk, raise your hand, right? Unit value, okay. Good, so we can make this interactive and we can have conversations because it's like all frameworks, it's probably half right and half wrong. And the question is you don't know which half is right, which half is wrong. And it's meant like my talk this morning to spur conversations or thoughts around the market, around your own go-to-market strategy. But specifically, unit value is meant from a, a product perspective, an engineering perspective, how to build products. So the, the framework from this came originally from my partner, Neil um, Bushery, who we'll hear from tonight. He says, as a startup, it's the classic battle between David and Goliath, right? Startup versus incumbent. It's your startup against Amazon, you know, uh, Mike Clayville and his services, EMC, Oracle, Google, Microsoft, these huge multi-billion dollar giants versus two, three, four, a hundred people in a dream and a plan. So really what we're talking about as startup versus incumbent is technology versus distribution. So as a startup, you have what I call either IP deep or operationally hard. You have a technology that gives you an advantage around AI, around security, around storage, around scale, around an application process. But what the incumbents have is distribution. They have customers. They have a sales force. They have channel. They have brand. They have all the leverages and all the weapons of an incumbent that you don't have. So then it becomes a race between can you build distribution, cost-effective distribution to get to your customers before the incumbents can buy or build a technology to compete. You start underneath the radar, small company, never taken seriously. Once you do get some scale, once you hit the radar of, a, of an incumbent, like a storage company or a database company or an app company like Salesforce, they're either going to buy a competitor or build their own to crush you. 
So what we mean is how do you scale go-to-market effectively? And this is part of the blitzscaling. And Reed and John alluded to this this morning, is oftentimes in blitzscaling or hyperscaling, you're kind of extending your supply lines, extending your go-to-market way in advance of where you are. And you know this, right? So if, if you're running a company right now that you're in the throes of go-to-market, you're probably hiring sales reps, hiring inside sales reps, probably burning a huge dollar amount in the effort to build distribution, so again, you know, we, we talk about product market fit, which quite frankly, I still don't know exactly what that means, but there's basically two things. There's technology, your solution, and the large market, and you're trying to match the two together. You know, you can have one, but not the other. You don't have a company. Okay, so why does this matter, and why do I, as a VC, as an investor, why do I think about go-to-market, why do I think about unit of value? And oftentimes in startups, we have the following problem, and oftentimes as investors, we often focus too much on the technology, right? We, we often get enamored by the product, by the technology, but we underestimate the difficulty it takes to bring this product to market. And that's, quite frankly, the hard part. No offense to the engineers and the scientists in the room, but bringing the product to market is as important, more important, and determine your success of a company than just your technology. So A, understanding your go-to-market impacts how much money to raise. Is it going to be $1 million or $100 million? It understands um, your setting your pricing and packaging. It, understand, it basically determines your margins and your profits at scale. Right? Is this a 10% business at scale, a 90% business at scale, or someplace in between? So things to talk about, I mean, there's channel, there's customer acquisition costs, there's partnerships, there's awareness, there's distribution. There's a whole bunch of things around go-to-market and think about, and there's great folks like Dave McJan in the room that can actually you know, weigh on all these more than me. I'm going to focus on this thing I call unit value as a, as a framework from the very beginning. And so what is a unit value? And it's from when I was running product at previous jobs, and when I look at companies now, I say, what's the smallest measurable unit at which your product or service delivers value? Right? Now, you can have multiple units of value, small, medium, large, and we talk about that, but the smallest unit of value is at what unit do you deliver value to your user, to your customer? It's also the unit of scaling. So you can sell one $10 billion product or you know, a bunch of small products, but what is the unit of scaling within a customer that you think about? And then it's also what do your customers really pay for? And we, we talk about examples, like API calls, number of seats, number of terabytes of storage, et cetera. Again, it determines the price you sell, the price you scale, and what you charge your customers. And there are small units of value and large units of value. Smaller is not better, and bigger is not very better. But let's talk about a different one. So small units of value. So something like Dropbox, right? As a Dropbox user, a single user, I get value from storing my files in the cloud and getting access anywhere. VMware, one server, one VM, Docker, one container, I get value from a very small unit of value. Microsoft Office, Microsoft Word, I as a content creator get value from buying Office. So very small um, units of value. Then there are medium units of value. So um, Salesforce, basically three to four sales rep in a company that are collaborating can have a small unit of value. Box, which is really early enterprise content management, a small team, marketing, a line of business, professional services, a department can all be on Box for file sharing collaboration. That's a unit of value. Atlassian, GitHub, developer tools, right? You're really collaborating, communicating with other developers. That's a small unit of value. It's not the entire company, not the entire dev team, but a small unit of value or medium unit value. 
And there's big units of value, right? Some like Mesos, you really only need kind of a scheduler when you have a large cluster of computers. Hadoop, you really only need to buy Hadoop when you have petabytes of data. Workday, um, we'll talk to Neil later today. HCM, human capital management. Your entire company should be on the same HR system or not at all. It doesn't make sense for sales and marketing engineering to be on three different HR systems. SAP, Oracle, these large ERP systems are large units of value. You're selling the entire company at, at, at once. So, Again, different sizes for different companies, for different products. Bigger's not better. Smaller's not better. You know, I have startups and CEOs come in and say, hey, we're going to be like Box or Dropbox, or we're going to be like GitHub. You know, that doesn't make any sense if you're selling a large unit of value. Make sure your go-to-market matches your unit of value. So bigger units of value like HCM, ERP, big data have longer sales cycles, usually. They're more complicated products, and you should charge more. doesn't mean the market's bigger. doesn't mean they can, they can be higher in revenue. It means that the, the minimal unit what you're selling is a large chunk of product. And then the questions then become like, how do I build a cost-effective direct sales force? But then the second question is, if I have a large unit of value, it takes months or weeks to sell the product, how do I build a, an advantage go-to-market? And what I mean by that is, in the battle against incumbency, if you're selling ERP software, you're selling um, database software, you're going against a large incumbent with a sales force, with uh, a channel, with a brand, you hiring 20 sales reps selling your database isn't going to be easy because you're basically fighting fire with fire. So what are ways that I can build advantage go to market? Through open source, through partnerships, through some level of product virality um, that you can actually build into um, your, your go to market to your product. So if you have smaller unit values, like one user, one server, three or four teams, again, you have shorter sales cycles, ideally, right? But also, how do you create a cost-effective channel? So if you're selling Dropbox Professional Pro for small teams, you don't want to send a direct sales force there. How do you cost-effectively upgrade kind of freemium users to a paid user, right? And so you want to build a, a self-service cost-effective method. And then the next question for after you kind of crack the first question is, how do I scale up the unit value? How do I scale up the size of my customers? So these small onesie, twosie, three-person deals turn to 300, 400 company-wide license agreements. Okay, so take a step back. You have small units of value, large units of value. You know, there are multiple paths to heaven, right? And as an investor, I think about, okay, what would it take to get this company to $100 million in revenue? Again, you can do something very small, like an API call. So if you're Twilio, you're Stripe, you're taking you know, pennies on the dollar for every single unit of value, every single transaction, to hit $100 million at 10 cents a call, you need a billion API calls, Right? On the flip side, if you're selling like HR software, ERP software, and you're charging $100,000 per customer, you only need 1,000 deals, and you can probably afford a direct sales force. And then it scales up and down. So if you have a $100 to $200, $300 product, like a, a small CRM product or maybe Dropbox for business, how do you make that as self-service as possible so you're acquiring customers, serving them without breaking the bank? And then there's this thing I call the dead zone in the middle. And this is the worst place to be. And oftentimes I, I give this framework and you have founders going, holy shit, I'm in the dead zone, you know? Or like, ah, oh, yeah, that pain I'm feeling, I'm in the dead zone. What happens in the dead zone is you have a, uh, this kind of in-between unit value where the cost of server customers 
inside sales, direct sales, is burning more cash than you're taking in. And that means either product is too complicated for self-service, right? So the API calls or the credit card via the website is not doing it, but it's still too small to justify an inside sales rep, a business development rep, and way too small of a deal to justify direct sales. And so you're stuck in the dead zone. We, we see companies recently go public or, or startups that come through raising money that are stuck in this dead zone where they're burning money. And then the question becomes, how do I get out of the dead zone once I'm in there, right? Do I, A, raise money and hopefully grow my average deal size so I move to the right? Or do I say, actually, I'm, I'm overselling my unit value. I can actually reduce the product I'm selling, simplify it, and move to the left, Okay, so we'll go through a couple of different case studies and how you get there. You know, the names here were eliminated to protect the innocent and the guilty. But this is a, one of the kind of these developer API services that we looked at. It's not a great lock portfolio company, but half their bookings are from customers paying more than $25,000 a year, even though they're charging pennies per API call. And so even though they have a very small unit value, they were able to find customers and scale them up fairly quickly to justify large ticket amounts. So again, a small unit value doesn't mean small deal sizes. It means you charge something very small, but you got to figure out how to scale it up. Same for this other cloud infrastructure service that has fewer users, 50,000. Their average monthly price is less than $50 per user, so a few hundred bucks a year. But again, they found that 5% of their customers drive half the monthly recurring revenue. So even though they start very small, 50 bucks a month, they were able to quickly grow and identify a segment of customers to use their service to scale up to justify larger deal sizes and a higher revenue. So the takeaway when I look at businesses like this is if you have a small unit value, that's okay, as long as you, A, can service those customers cost-effectively, and B, scale it up profitably to some reasonable deal size. Otherwise, you're, you're, it's going to be very hard to grow into a $100 million plus revenue business. The second thing I think a lot about is how do you create non-linear value when you grow? And so if you're selling um, seats or you're selling servers, if you add your product and manage the servers for like configuration management security, you're kind of scaling up linearly with your customers. But how do you create non-linear value? What I mean by that is, as your customer consumes more of your product, storage, security, applications like a workflow, CRM, customer support, if I start consuming more and more of the product, do I create non-linear value for the customer? Meaning they get more value out of buying more of your product. It doesn't mean you can charge more, right? The area under the curve is really the value created, and then it's based upon pricing. Do you give that value to the customer, or you increase your prices to get that value? Again, so this is um, non-exhaustive. There's some ideas on how to go non-linear. Basically, as you build your offerings, you can do things like management, monitor security. You can sell it to a business unit, multiple business units, multiple buyers. There's add-on products you can sell on. But it's worth thinking about that as you plan out your core unit value, what's an Act 2, Act 3, Act 4 of your company that you can sell on top of your core unit value to drive up that revenue line? Again, there's also value when you go nonlinear, when you're creating more value. So the more value I get out of consuming more of your product just makes you stickier, right? So your, your standard, your, your database standard, like Oracle was early, if I'm all on Oracle, all my developers are using it, there's value in that for my developers. It also makes it a lot stickier to replace Oracle as a default database. There's also other ways I think about network effects, standards, and platforms. And again, these are not exhaustive, and there's other ways to increase value non-linearly that um, you can think about, we can talk about later too. 
again, network effects is classic. I think Reid Hoffman talked about this morning, that basically Metcalf's law. The more users are using it, the more value they get. So messaging like email, instant messaging, Slack, Quip, things like that are basically using network effects. So the more people in the company using the product increase the value of the product. And collaboration tools are largely like Dropbox and Box are using network effects. Standards. So we always want to be a platform. The next two ones are very related. There are de facto standards and official market standards. And de facto standards are like languages, APIs, like an Amazon, Office, like doc format or the Excel format, or the PPT format for the longest time were de facto standards. And so when you're the de facto standards, you're all communicating in Word or PowerPoint or you're all on Amazon using their APIs, that's a powerful position to be in as well because everyone in the company can agree on a standard and your ecosystem can use a standard. But standards also fade, right? They change quickly if you're not careful. So browser wars, right? Netscape was a standard. So everyone was developing and testing against Netscape. Then IE got to 30, 40% market share. And Microsoft basically beat Netscape because it was no longer the standard. Then Firefox, Chrome, Safari, et cetera. And so at some point in time, you have this ability to create a de facto standard. But oftentimes, if you're monetizing that too aggressively, there'll be new entrants and standards fade or can actually be um, replaced. So platforms is actually another, another way we think about it. And platforms are hard to build. So VMware, uh, if you're Amazon, you're a Docker, you think about being a platform. But it's not just infrastructure platforms. Also have this concept of systems of record, right? Basically, how do you be the system of record in a company? And this is really owning the critical data. So in an enterprise company, I like to think there's three systems of records that matter. Your employees, your customers, and your assets. So HR is a system record for employees. CRM is a system record for your customers, and ERP is a system record for your assets. Again, Workday is trying to own your employer records. Salesforce tries to own your customer records. And ERP, largely Oracle and SAP, though Workday is aggressively moving to that space as well. There's also um, technology platforms, infrastructure stores, networking monitoring. VMware went through this path becoming the, the system record for all these technologies. Docker and that ecosystem around containers is going down that path as well. Again, so actually we'll have Mike on stage next and talk about the, the cloud standards between Amazon, Azure, and Google. Are these really platforms that can become a system record for developers? Again, you can go through this journey. It's not one size fits all. You can do multiple things. You can be the standard early. You can sell additional products like management, monitoring, security. And then if you actually have a huge amount of usage within a customer, you can create an ecosystem, a platform, of developers, of third-party customers on your platform. And that's either because A, you're the de facto standard. B, you own the system record like Salesforce has force.com for your customer records. Or C, you actually have a technical infrastructure of networking storage that you intercede on. You know, just kind of three things I think about on go-to-market. It's a conscious choice. Don't expect to fall into your go-to-market. Don't expect to fall into your unit of value. So you want to be thoughtful about it. Often, uh, the mistake I see companies often make early is they let their customers determine the system record. They let their customers determine the pricing packaging way too early. One thing I want to talk about that is powerful that doesn't happen often is you can have the same system of record, or sorry, same unit values or competition, but charged differently. So unit value isn't necessarily the unit you charge for. And the classic example is the Office suite. So Microsoft Office, PowerPoint, Word, Excel, charges per user more or less. Google Apps is also value per user, right? You get value from Google Docs per user. 
But even though the unit value was number of users, what they charged for is very different. Microsoft charged per user. Google gave away for free because they made money on ads. So really, the, the unit value for Google as a company isn't users or, or data. It's number of eyeballs, number of people. It's, it's you that they're, they're selling ads to. So if you have a business where you have a com- competitor with the same unit of value, but you can charge something differently, then that's pretty powerful because the incumbent is now trapped by their own business model. Again, don't be afraid to iterate. You'll probably get this wrong the first time, the second time, the third time. But once you do it, you're not stuck. But you got to be quick about this because the worst thing that happens, you're stuck in a unit of value. You're stuck in a go-to-market framework that you can't get out of. And then I think a couple things, how to be honest about it. So as a CEO, as a founder, you know, I think a couple of companies like Drew and Zach have done this with their teams. So what's your unit of value? Ask your developers, ask your sales reps, ask your product guys um, and talk about it, right? Be honest about it, that you might have a big unit of value, you might have a small one, you might have multiple units of value and your, your focus then is try to figure out what it is. And then create a roadmap, right? Like be thoughtful about it, what happens next. Once you create the unit of value, once you create your first customers, what do you do next? And uh, that's it. So with that, I'll turn to the questions before we, we go to the next conference, the next event. Questions, thoughts? I'll take one because you kind of touched on it at the end, but I know you have a few things to say about it, so I'll prompt you. You bring up an interesting point about unit of value, and you mentioned at the end the notion that just because you've defined it or you acknowledge what it is doesn't mean that you can't change it. But I think that, you know, one thing that would be, you know, kind of, you know, helpful to hear your thoughts on is, how do you go about, like if you've realized your unit value, you want to change it, what should be the kind of decision process on whether or not, you know, A, you can do it based on your existing customer base, and yeah. B, what does that transition ideally look like? The longer you wait to change your unit value or how you price, the harder it gets. And this is why incumbents are hard to change because you're victims of your own success and you're victims of your own business model. So if you're used to selling software on a, a per-server, perpetual license basis, it's really hard to go to subscription basis, right, per monthly or annually. And um, once you're a public company and you're used to reporting you know, perpetual licenses, it gets really hard to change as well. So I would say for incumbents, you can use this inertia as a vulnerability against them to sell, right? Like Google did this with Microsoft on, on, on Google Apps versus Office. For use a startup, you got to do it early. So I would either A, experiment early with different customer groups, like don't be afraid to kind of A-B test it, or B, as you roll out new versions, 1.0, 2.0, is play around with it. But when I say you can change it, I mean you got to iterate, got to iterate quickly because once you start scaling and hit that hyperscale mode, you're kind of stuck. I'm not sure we're there yet, but uh, in terms of enterprise app stores, it seems like a few could emerge. I mean, you have the Amazon platform. Yeah. I'm not sure how well that's working in terms of charging on top of the EC2 price or something. Do you think those there's some good examples of that being done? And how does that affect your price? Because then the platform is dictating your price, right? I think um, so. The question around app stores, like Amazon App Store, there's a Slack App Store, there's a you know Google Play Store. So I think you can't rely on those things. Those things, I think, what we've seen, especially the mobile app stores, those are, are narrow windows. So I think app stores are great for a distribution and, and discovery. And so if, you, if you're early and you get um, distribution through discovery when these app stores are new, you can use that to your advantage. So I would charge 
I would be aggressive early. It's not necessarily dropping a price and offer a discount, whatever. Because what we've seen, at least on the mobile side, it's a land grab. When you're there early, you get trial, you get promoted. But at some point in time, if the app store is successful, everybody knows it. They all crowd in. All of a sudden, the value of that app store starts going away and it gets harder and harder. If you remember um, the slide I said this morning, the kind of a lot of companies are stuck between open source and a cloud place, rock and a hard place. Oftentimes, you know, you don't want to be dependent upon Amazon or Apple or, or Google as your distribution channel. Just like an open source, you want to have direct relation with the developer, you need some direct relationship with your user or customer. So I would say app stores are a tactic, not a strategy. So they're a short-term way to get to your users, but they're not a long-term channel for your business model. Because if, let's say you're, you're not going to be relying on App Store for more than a year or two. And for sure, if it's successful for you, why doesn't like Drew or Michael or someone else do the same thing? How does um, unit of value sort of apply when you start thinking about SMB versus enterprise? So the two examples that you used were essentially could potentially be self-service SMB-based products. But in both cases, their revenue came from the enterprise or at least from larger sales. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, it, it, the question's vague, but I think... Uh, if you're trying to build an SMB-based business, yeah. is, is that a bad idea at a startup stage? Let's talk SMB specifically, right? and then how Unival applies. So regardless of Unival, what SMB in my mind means the number of units you scale up to is limited, right? Because if, if let's say, it's number of employees, you're selling to SMB, it's, there's, by definition, so many employees, less in SMB than large enterprise. If it's number of servers, there are fewer servers used by the SMB than enterprise. So SMB versus enterprise doesn't determine what the unit value is. It determines the ceiling of the number of units you scale to, number one. And so knowing that the number of units you scale to is capped, when you target the SMB, the problem is always the following. Knowing that the deal sizes are going to be capped, how do you actually cost-effectively sell to the SMB, which is how do you acquire them, e.g. market to them? How do you sell to them and service them, pre-sales and post-sales? And it's okay to spend a lot of dollars on a direct sales force and acquiring customers on the enterprise side, even though you have a small unit of value, because if you're successful, you can scale up to thousands of users. But it makes no sense in the long run if you're capped in the SMB. So I think SMB is not the unit of value. SMB is, okay, if I'm capped in the deal size, i got to create a cost-effective channel. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about about the uh, platform units of value and maybe even specifically you mentioned system of record and glue layer. Are yeah. they mutually exclusive and, and what are the approaches there? Nothing's not mutually exclusive. So platform is kind of a controversial term, right? It's like, you know, everybody wants to be a platform at some point of scale. Not everybody, but people talk about it and people have different definitions of platform. That said, very few customers wake up and go, you know, what I need to I need a new freaking platform. I need a new like content management platform. I need a new database platform. Very often they don't think that. They actually think I need an application. I need, I need to solve a business problem first and foremost. Platforms come after the fact, usually. But we can talk about that jujitsu if you want now or, or later. Now, there's different ways to build a platform. In my mind, platforms when you have a layer of technology in which other people build on top of. That, that are not you, right? And so that means there are uh, applications or other ecosystems to plug on top of it. And so in order to build that, either A, you have to have the data, e.g. the system records. So if you own all the customer data in CRM, marketing apps, customer support apps, or build on top of it. If you own all the HR data, a la HCM, then recruiting apps, um, performance review apps, payment apps, right, for salaries, are built on top of it. And so because you own that data. A platform layer... 
outside of data and infrastructure is the glue layer means that you sit between networking, storage, right? Between compute, between different parts of technology at a layer below. And what that means is like VMware did this well and the cloud guys trying to do this. You actually are um, the layer between different technology components, storage, networking, um, compute, that you can actually have ecosystem on top of you. So VMware did this well. Microsoft operating systems do this well, right? Windows, um, iOS, Android does this well. They become a platform layer because they own the layer technology between the hardware and everything else. They're not mutually exclusive. You can do both. When you bootstrap and you don't effectively define your unit of value, that would land you in the dead zone, isn't it? You can so, get lucky. Okay. I mean, like, it's like, I'd rather be, I mean, look, you can get lucky. Some companies do, right? They, they, they've the first two or three customers they land on say, hey, you know, Matt, I want to pay per server, pay this, and it, it scales. But my, my comment in the last couple of slides was like, don't count on being lucky because, you know, you, you're not, if you pick the wrong customers or you pick the wrong unit of value, you could be in the dead zone quickly. And at certain times, you might not have the liberty to make that shift late in the game. Correct. And uh, the consequence that you might face is a negative adversity, you know, if you've built a consumer base. And to quote with illustration, uh, GitHub has shifted its unit of value from repo to per user and repo. And uh, there is a side effect to this. So how would you deal with that side effect, especially with your consumers? Yeah, it's similar to uh, Adam's question, how you shift these unit values. And um, it's not easy. It determines, A, on a relationship with your customer, number one. So here are the pauses. If you are a powerful platform, because you own the data or you own the APIs, you can do things that are unnatural, uh, shifting unit value, and your customers have no choice but stick around because you own their data right? Not everyone does that. GitHub owns all the code, and so they can play around with it. It's really hard to get off of GitHub once you're on it. So they have some flexibility. So if you're ready to this kind of platform, you have more degrees of freedom. That said, if you don't have that or early in, in your journey, you can't do that. You know, what I said to Adam is you either iterate early, you find different customer segments, or you wait to release a new product. So uh, uh, an example enterprises do, and this may not be their answer, you have good, better, best, gold, silver, bronze. And so the unit value, how you're charging for the first product, when you sell it to larger companies, SMB versus enterprise, you change how you charge. So maybe SMB is fixed fee, right? It gets up to X number of users because you don't want to count and want to service them, swipe your credit card. But your unit value for above 1,000 users, you're going to charge per terabyte, per user, per server, per you know workflow, per VPN tunnel. And so you can segment by good, better, best, um, segment by markets, and that's your next best thing. And then if you get more advanced, you can try things like changing brands and changing products. And so what the non-technology brands do this well. Car companies do this all the time. You know, your, your Toyota and your Honda, whatever, they have multiple platforms. They're all the same car, all the same engine. But just because you have a Lexus or an Audi or something on it, it's really the same car, but they segment people by brands. So that's powerful too. Other questions? Well, um, we can find me earlier. Thank you for that. And then um, we're going to bring up Mike. 